Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This week on PA Books, the author of 50 Children, Stephen Pressman. Stephen Pressman, author of 50 Children. How did you find out about this story? Brian, this was a story that in a way, was kind of hiding in plain sight for many years. I'm, uh, I'm a lucky guy in a lot of ways. I'm, I'm married to one of the grandchildren of Gil and Eleanor Krauss, uh, the, the couple who are at the focus of this incredible story. And uh, my wife Liz, not surprisingly, knew, at least generally, what her grandparents had done many, many years ago, even though they never really talked about it that much. But fortunately, Eleanor Krauss had written it all down some years later and my wife actually had a copy of this sort of private memoir that her grandmother had written and uh, not long after Liz and I met she turned to me and said there's something I think you might be interested in taking a look at and I read this it's not quite a diary but it's a it's it's Eleanor recounting the story and I thought wow this is one heck of a story and that was my original introduction to this otherwise unknown rescue story that had taken place now about 75 years ago. What, was, what did you do with it when you found out? <laughs> well, at first, I, I have to admit, I thought I was reading a piece of fiction, or at least an attempt at a piece of fiction. This was a, an account of a Jewish couple from Philadelphia who voluntarily agreed to go into Nazi Germany to rescue a group of kids, and I thought, this couldn't possibly have happened. So. Uh, I had spent many years as a journalist, as a newspaper and a magazine journalist, and, and my first instinct was this couldn't possibly have happened the way that Eleanor Krauss said it did. So I began to do a little research, and uh, we ended up speaking with some folks at the United States Holocaust Museum in Washington, D.C. They had never heard of this story either. Uh, but little by little, we all began to do a little bit of research. And in fact, it turned out to be exactly how Eleanor Krauss said it did. And at that point, I had that sort of little aha moment that said, now wait a second, if nobody else knows about it, maybe it's time to figure out some way to, to tell the story. And so my initial disbelief then turned into this quest to really dig much deeper into this truly incredible story. So where does it start? Gil and Eleanor Krauss in Philadelphia, and suddenly someone says, hey, you know what we ought to do? <laughs> Let's go and rescue some kids. You know, it, 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 it's, it's pretty close to that, as a matter of fact, Brian. Uh, Gil and Eleanor Krauss were uh, a couple who lived in Philadelphia, just a few blocks from where we're sitting right now. Uh, they were just a few blocks uh, away from Rittenhouse Square in a, in a neighborhood that was, and I believe still is, called Fittler Square uh, in, in, here in Philadelphia. Uh, and Gil was a fairly successful business lawyer. Uh, he and Eleanor were Jewish, but they were very, very secular Jews. These were not religious Jews at all. But both of them knew 
that by the early part of 1939, things were turning pretty bad for Jews who were living inside Nazi Germany. They were reading the newspapers, and the newspapers by this point were really filled with stories about the sort of worsening conditions that Jews were facing in, inside Nazi Germany. Gill was also part of a fraternal Jewish organization that was based in Philadelphia called Brith Shalom. And the head of that organization, a good friend of Gill's, a gentleman named Louis Levine, wanted to do something and thought that Brith Shalom could maybe play a role. And he and, he and Gill sat down at Gill's law office uh, down in downtown Philadelphia, and they hatched this idea to try to somehow go over to Nazi Germany and rescue at least a small group of Jewish children. Gill, without hesitating, said, I'm, I'm going to take this project on. And, and that was really the, the genesis for this, for this project. Uh, Gill had a little bit of a challenge because when he went home that evening to talk about it with his wife, Eleanor was not quite so sure that this was something up her alley. Uh, and uh, ultimately, of course, she became a very enthusiastic partner with her husband, and, and both of them then embarked on this incredible mission. Did they give any indication before that that they were inclined to do that sort of thing? I mean, were they politically active? Gil, Gil came from an interesting family. Gil's father, a gentleman named Solomon Krauss, was a real estate guy in Philadelphia. But Solomon was also very philanthropic in uh, this organization I mentioned a moment ago, Brith Shalom. Solomon was actually one of the early members of that organization, and they did a number of things charitable and otherwise in, in Philadelphia. They helped to found a hospital for tuberculosis patients. And so Solomon himself was steeped in this, but nothing, nothing that rose to the occasion of going over to Nazi Germany and, and doing something like this. Uh, my wife Liz, who, who knew her grandparents later on, obviously after this story takes place, always remembered her grandfather Gill as being uh, a very stubborn guy and a guy who had a very, very deep sense of right and wrong. And I think he looked around at this point and saw that uh, there was a great need for something that otherwise wasn't really happening in this country in terms of doing something to help uh, this truly worsening situation for Jews inside Nazi Germany. And I think he, perhaps because of a little bit of the influence of his father, he thought, it's time to do something, and, and off he went. Was this kind of thing happening in other countries? Other groups were trying to rescue children out of uh, Nazi-controlled areas? You know, it, it's a good question. And, and um, in fact, one of the reasons why this is such a great Philadelphia story and a, and a Pennsylvania story, in fact, is that the Quakers, who of course were steeped in Philadelphia history and were headquartered in Philadelphia, the, Quaker, the Quakers and the American Friends Service Committee had been very active for many years, really ever since Adolf Hitler rose to power in the early 1930s in trying to save refugees. Uh, Gill knew some of those Quaker leaders and in fact consulted with them. Unfortunately, the Quakers and other refugee groups that were trying to help ran up against America's very, very stringent immigration laws that were in place at the time. Basically, those laws put up a brick wall in front of groups that were trying to bring Jewish refugees into this country. Gill knew that. Gill talked with some of those groups, uh, many, of, many of which simply had no success 
in doing these good works of trying to bring children and adults out of Nazi Germany. Uh, but yes, there were other groups trying to do it, and none of them really had found any success. You write in your book about a, a, a bill that was trying to work its way through. It was at the Senate, and there were hearings, and, and Helen Hayes, the actress, mm -hmm. testified. And Was it specifically uh, Jews that they didn't want to come into America, or was it uh, immigrants it, in general? You know, it was a combination. Uh, this was a period in American history uh, when we were still coming out of the Depression, uh, which, of course, had crushed the nation 10 years earlier. And there was a strong political argument that any immigrant coming into this country, among other things, was going to take a job away from American citizens. It kind of sounds familiar. We, we still have that debate 75 years later. So that was part of it. But my, I also discovered, and this was very disturbing to learn, I also discovered that in the 1930s, uh, the, the anti-Semitic attitudes among members of the American public was just rampant. There were public opinion polls that were being taken throughout this period by Gallup and other organizations. And they were very sobering statistics from these public opinion polls. Let me read some of them. You say, a series of public opinion polls conducted in the late 1930s found that 60% of, of Americans held the low opinion of Jews regarding them as greedy, dishonest, and pushy. A Roper poll conducted in 1939 revealed that only 39% of Americans felt that Jews should receive the same treatment as other citizens, while 53% believed that Jews are different and should be restricted. This is in America. One out of every 10 Americans felt that all Jews should be deported outright. Yeah, very sobering. You know, I was a, uh, many years ago, I was a political science major at, in college, and like most college students, I thought I knew everything there was to know. Um, and not until I dug into those kinds of statistics as I was researching this book did I really fully grasp the anti-Semitism that existed in this country at a time when, as I said, the newspapers were filled with stories about what Adolf Hitler had in mind for the Jews living inside Europe. Uh, Gil Krauss and others knew that, and they knew they had a challenge in dealing with public opinion that was not looking favorably upon more Jews coming into this country. And I think in a sense that's what made this mission all the more amazing and incredible. Well, let's set the stage in Europe a little bit. This is 1939, early 1939, and the uh, Germany and England and France were not at war yet. Correct. That's right. If you walked around in Berlin, what would life have been like? By the late 1930s, uh, if you walked around Berlin, first of all, you would see Nazi banners and flags hanging from every building. You would see portraits of Adolf Hitler in every shop window. You would see signs in public parks and restaurants saying, Judenverboten, Jews forbidden. Uh, that's, that was the atmosphere in places like Berlin. In Austria, uh, things had gotten worse very quickly. In 1938, only a year before this story takes place, Adolf Hitler triumphantly motorcaded into the city of Vienna after the so-called Anschluss, which was Nazi Germany's annexation of Austria into the Third Reich. Featured in uh, The Sound of Music. Absolutely. Absolutely. This story is taking place exactly that same time. So by 1939, when Gill and Eleanor Krauss set out on this mission and wind up in Vienna, Vienna is completely 
under the control of, of the Nazis. And in fact, when Hitler came into Austria, a million people thronged the streets welcoming Adolf Hitler into, into Vienna, Austria. So Austria was as anti-Semitic and as anti-Jewish and as supportive of Adolf Hitler as was Germany itself. This was a sobering period, certainly for two American Jews to find themselves in very, very hostile territory. How many Jews were in Berlin and Vienna at the time? Uh, by, by the late 1930s, actually a good percentage of Jews living in both of those countries had left. You know, it's interesting to note, when we think of the Holocaust, we think of Auschwitz, we think of concentration camps, we think of obviously the, the six million victims of the Holocaust. But earlier in the 1930s, before the death camps, the Nazis actually had a policy called Judenrein, which was their policy that said, we want Jews to leave. We want every Jew in Nazi Germany to leave. And they were actually happy to see them leave if anybody would take them in. So there were originally in Germany about 650,000 Jews and in Austria about 200,000 Jews. And by the late 1930s, about two-thirds of those Jews in Germany had left, had gone to other countries. Um, in Austria, the, the Anschluss had set off this alarm bell for Jews, and by the time Gill and Eleanor Krauss showed up, really tens of thousands of Jews at that point, families, children, and adults, were desperate to find places to escape to. The ones who left, where were they able to go? Well, some of them, few of them, came to the United States if they had relatives, if they had somebody willing to financially support them, which was a requirement under our immigration laws. They went to other countries in Europe. Um, and it, unfortunately, some of the Jews who were able to escape places like Germany and Austria did end up in countries like France or Belgium, which only a couple of years later, of course, fell under the uh, domination of the Nazis, and, and many of those Jews did end up becoming victims of the Holocaust. Some, interestingly enough, in retrospect, made the really wrong choice of going east. There were Jews living in Vienna, Austria, who were originally from places like Poland or Eastern Europe, who had family there who said, well, we'll go back there. And of course, we all know what happened to those Jews. It was just a total massacre a couple of years later. When did it start becoming obvious that, to Jews in Austria and in Berlin that, that things were going to go badly? Probably the single episode, the single most dramatic episode that announced to those Jews and really to the rest of the world what Adolf Hitler had in mind was something that came to be known as Kristallnacht. That was, that was a sort of a pogrom, an anti-Jewish riot that broke out in November of 1938. And this was a uh, pogrom and a, uh, that was officially sanctioned by, by the Nazi hierarchy in Berlin, where synagogues were burned to the ground and, and Jewish-owned businesses were looted. And uh, it became known as Kristallnacht, which basically means the night of shattered glass uh, because of the businesses that were destroyed and, and looted. From that moment on, certainly Jews themselves and the rest of the world knew what Adolf Hitler had in mind. And, and, and I think that incident, in fact, uh, had a direct impact on Gill and Eleanor Krauss in particular, because it was really only about 
two months later that this rescue mission began to unfold. So when the Krauses decided they were going to do this, well, how did they proceed? How do you well, start a project like that? <laughs> Uh, you start talking to your friends. Uh, Gil went to his wife Eleanor and said, look, I have no idea if this is going to work, but if we have any chance of succeeding, we have to get these sort of legal affidavits for every child we hope to bring into this country, meaning a legal document that promised to provide financial support, which again was, was part of the requirement of the immigration laws. Gil knew he had the support of the this Brith Shalom organization, and they began to raise the funds among their own members in Philadelphia and, and elsewhere uh, to raise the funds that would be necessary to bring these, bring these children over. Um, but Gil also had the help of some other key folks, uh, again, in Philadelphia. Um, Eleanor was told fairly early on that it, would, that it would be pretty dangerous for a woman to go into Nazi Germany and she somewhat reluctantly, or perhaps with a little bit of relief, said, okay, I won't go. Gil needed somebody to go with, and he found a pediatrician here in Philadelphia who they knew, Dr. Robert Schles, who also agreed very quickly to, to help with this operation. And slowly but surely, Gil made the connections in the State Department. He had a friend who was a congressman at the time from Philadelphia who began to make some introductions. And, Slowly, Gill, with his lawyer's mind, began to put this operation together. Did he come across resistance in the, in the State Department and in red tape? Boy, he, he, did he ever. Uh, you know, we were talking about the anti-Semitism that existed in this country in the 1930s. Well, the State Department, unfortunately, uh, was filled with people who had no sympathy whatsoever to the idea of Jewish refugees coming into this country, and in fact, had made it their mission to throw every obstacle in the way of more immigrants coming into this country. And, and Gil, Gil really didn't have any experience dealing with immigration matters, but because of some of these introductions that he had, he quickly learned what he was up against, including knowing that the State Department had all these folks who were dead set against operations like this. Fortunately for Gil, he was introduced by his congressman friend, whose name was Leon Sachs, to a gentleman at the State Department named uh, George Messersmith. And George Messersmith was a career diplomat who had served both in Berlin and in Austria. Now you don't get much more German-sounding a name uh, than Messersmith. No, no, no. But uh, George Messersmith was a fascinating guy, and uh, he, he had a much more empathy about what was happening to Jews in, in Germany. And, he wasn't able ever to officially endorse what Gill was doing. He, in fact, he made it very clear when Gill went to Washington to, to meet with Mr. Messersmith that the State Department could not officially endorse or support this mission, but he was able to cut through the red tape a little bit. And more importantly, he was able to introduce Gill to folks in Vienna and in Berlin who ultimately were able to help out a little bit. It sounds from your book like there was not unanimity in the Jewish community here about this idea. I, I was surprised, uh, I have to tell you, Brian, I was very surprised when I discovered that there were Jewish community leaders in Philadelphia and elsewhere who came to Gill as soon as they heard about this mission and did whatever they could to stop this operation dead in its tracks. Uh, and at first, I, I couldn't understand how that was 
that would have been possible. Why on earth would Jews stand in the way? And I came to understand that they were afraid. They were afraid of a backlash. They were afraid that if Gil failed to accomplish this mission, others would say, see, this is not going to work. People don't want Jews coming into this country. And I think those organizations that tried to talk them out of it, somewhat understandably, although it's a little hard really to grasp that, just were very afraid of the risks involved in moving ahead with this project and failing. And Gil, to his credit, again, my wife Liz often reminded me how stubborn a man her grandfather was, said, I'm sorry, this is the right thing to do, and I'm going to go ahead and do it. Well, I think you also wrote about the Quakers trying to do this in meeting with Joseph Goebbels. Mm -hmm. Is that right? And they got laughed at? Yeah, they sure did. There were, there were three Quaker leaders in Philadelphia who, only a couple months before this mission of Gill and Eleanor, who had this idea that if they went over to Nazi Germany, again, this, we're talking about late 1938, early 1939, they thought they could reasonably sit down with the likes of Goebbels and Hitler himself. And, and just try to talk rationally about a plan to allow more Jews to come out of the country and maybe to offer a little more lenient treatment to Jews living inside the country. We think of that now, of course, as naive and innocent. But at the time, um, they thought they could sit down with somebody like Adolf Hitler, and, and they went over there. Uh, and of course, uh, once they got there, they were immediately dismissed by folks like Goebbels. Uh, and no, nothing came of it. Uh, but uh, again, Gil, Gil knew that. Uh, Gil had read in the newspapers about uh, this Quaker delegation that had gone, and, and uh, he knew that things were, uh, that, that he was running out of time, and that Jews were running out of time, that if anything was going to happen, now was the time to do it. Was Gil's project um, reported in the papers? When Gil first set out on this mission, I discovered um, there, were, there was a very short little story in one of the Jewish newspapers in Philadelphia that reported on a Brish Shalom meeting where this, where there, where this was discussed. Uh, that was pretty much the extent of it. Gill did not want publicity about this mission for understandable reasons. He was very nervous that if word got out, uh, people, whether in Washington, D.C. or elsewhere, would say, no, 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 this, we, we don't want to do this. So he tried whenever he could to make sure that there was no publicity. I learned later on uh, that the Jewish newspapers and others actually sat on this story uh, precisely for that reason. Uh, so other than a little bit of initial publicity, there was not a word of this breathed uh, publicly until it had finished and successfully finished. So in early 1939, what, what part of 1939 was this? We're talking about the very early part, January or so of 1939. The war started in September. And the war started in September. It was possible then for a, a Jew in America to buy passage to across the Atlantic and go to Berlin? Yes. It was still perfectly legal for Americans to travel to Nazi Germany. Uh, there were some cases of American businessmen and others, tourists and others, who had been roughed up a little bit, who had been detained for questioning. So there were risks involved, but we were not at war with Nazi Germany. We still had an American embassy operating in, in uh, Berlin. Our ambassador had been recalled by President Roosevelt after Kristallnacht a few months earlier, so as a sign of protest. 
But the embassy itself and the diplomatic staff was, other than the ambassador, was still in place and it was still perfectly legal for Americans to travel to Nazi Germany. So when Gill arrived in Berlin, what did he do? Who did he meet with? Gill shows up in Berlin with, with his friend Dr. Schles and they, they meet uh, at the American embassy with a gentleman named Raymond Geist. Raymond Geist, who was a close friend of George Messersmith back in Washington, D.C., was the senior diplomatic officer at the American Embassy in Berlin. Uh, and he also, like Messersmith, was very empathetic about the conditions facing Jews and wanted to do whatever he could, knowing, again, that he could not officially support this mission or make absolute promises to Gill that these children would be able to get the visas that were necessary to get out. But he told Gill, look, if you want to proceed, I'll sort of do what I can in a kind of a back-channel way to see if this is possible. But what he and others also told Gill in Berlin was, go quickly to Vienna, because that's where conditions are really bad. Uh, things had changed overnight for the Jewish community in, in Vienna, as opposed to Berlin, where the Jewish community had had already several years living under Hitler's rule. So they were kind of prepared, uh, and a lot of Jews had already left Germany, but the situation in Vienna was very different. And so Geist and others told Gill and Dr. Schles, get yourself to Vienna as quickly as possible, which is why Gill ended up in Vienna. Why did they focus on bringing children out as opposed to families or adults? Well, I think that Gill um, had this sense from a humanitarian point of view that an effort to save children might work where it was, at this point, almost impossible to get visas for adults and, and families. I mentioned before the opposition to immigration in this country because of the competition for jobs with the lingering effects of the Depression. And I think Gill knew that the immigration laws being what they were, he was going to have no chance of bringing in able-bodied adults. But at least from a humanitarian point of view, the idea of rescuing a group of children perhaps would have been a little easier. Uh, and I think that's why he focused on, on children. So when, when he was in Berlin, he, he was able to move around freely, take buses or cabs? He sure was. Staying in hotels? Yeah. You know, I, uh, I, I, I've seen photographs and newsreel footage, not, not of Gill, but of Berlin itself in the late 1930s, and it was a bustling city. The cafes were filled, and, and, and there were tourists. At one point, Eleanor talks about taking a bus around Berlin, uh, basically a tourist bus, you know, the way we see tourist buses here in the States. Conducted in English. A absolutely, absolutely. Uh, and so you would not have known that this was the heart truly of the evil empire in that sense. It, Berlin was a bustling, thriving city. And you, you say that um, they found, uh, Eleanor, when she got to Berlin, found herself fixated on the ubiquitous Judenverboten signs, mm -hmm. which Gill had come to ignore. Um, technically, we were exempt by virtue of being Americans. So Austrian or German Jews were forbidden from Absolutely. restaurants, but, but American Jews were allowed to go in. Well, I think this was sort of the Nazis looking the other way to a certain extent. Yes, they obviously would have known that Gill and Eleanor Krauss were Jewish. The Gestapo knew that Gill and Eleanor Krauss were in the country. They knew what they were there to do, in fact. That's the odd thing about this. Again, this was a period when the Germans, the Nazis, would have been happy for the likes of Gill and Eleanor to take thousands of children back with them. They had no place to 
go to. Um, but yeah, it's that weird situation where here are two American Jews uh, seeing all these no Jews allowed. And Eleanor at one point turns to her husband and says, are we supposed to be here? They had people helping them. Are they supposed to be here? Gil said, I don't really care. We're here to do something and we're just going to go ahead and do it. Eleanor, I think, was trembling, trembling in her boots. Uh, but Gil just said, we're here to do a job and just ignore those signs. Now, uh, before you made a book out of this story, you did a documentary for, for HBO. How did you did. go from the idea to, to pitching it to HBO? You know, it's a funny thing about that. I mentioned that I was a print journalist for, for many years, and when I first decided to do something with this story, I had never made a film before. But for some reason, I thought, it's such a good story. Uh, maybe there's an opportunity to, uh, to turn this into a documentary film. And so, even though I always knew in the back of my mind that ultimately I was going to write a, a longer, more detailed book about this story, Somehow I had the idea that it would it make for an interesting film, and, and, uh, and so I set out initially, as, as you mentioned, to, to make the film. Uh, HBO, I was extraordinarily fortunate uh, to wind up with them, because that's not how it started. It's kind I, of starting at the top. Uh, pretty much, yeah. I, I know how lucky I am. I, I went ahead and made this film really on my own. Um, I, I obviously had other... Uh, folks helping me in terms of the filmmaking part of it because I, I didn't know how to make a film. And I put together a wonderful crew and we made the film. And then after I basically had finished the film, I was able to uh, get the film into the hands of, of folks at uh, HBO. In, in particular, a wonderful woman named Sheila Nevins, who's the longtime president of HBO Documentary Films. And luckily for me, she and others took the film to their heart and helped me improve it a little bit, and, and the film had its premiere on, on, on HBO. Narrated by Alan Alda? Narrated by Alan Alda, and uh, the voice of Eleanor Krauss is a young actress named Mamie Gummer, who a lot of people know is Meryl Streep's daughter. Uh, and, uh, and no, it was, it was, look, I have to tell you, with all humility, it was a it was a great honor for me to be working with these incredibly talented people. As How, a, how'd you as land a them as a filmmaker. beginner filmmaker? <laughs> <laughs> well, HBO had, had a little bit to do with that. Uh, the original version of the film, there were some other voices in the film, and once I started working with HBO, uh, Sheila Nevins uh, had this idea of kind of raising the profile, in a sense, of, of the film, and, and she had some terrific ideas of, about that, including bringing in uh, uh, Mr. Alda as, 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 the, as the narrator, and I have this very vivid memory, just a quick aside, of the day uh, we recorded uh, Alan's narration, and, you know, I, I've been a fan of his going back to his days as, as Hawkeye Pierce in, in MASH, and, and, and there I am about to direct Alan Alda, and it was, a, it was, quite, a, uh, it was quite an experience. He was wonderful, he, and he had really prepared. I mean, he wasn't there just to read some lines. He had done his homework, and we had a discussion about some references in the film, and I, I just think he did a terrific job as, as, the, as the narrator in this film. Did you write the script? Mm-hmm, I did. I, I did, and uh, I had done my research, and, and, uh, and uh, I had some help with some historians who were kind of looking over my shoulder here and there and making suggestions a little bit here and there, and 
there were some references to Franklin Roosevelt, and there's this ongoing debate about Roosevelt all these years later. Uh, but yeah, I, 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 I ended up writing the script as well. And you included interviews with some of the now older children. Yeah, you know, I set out really always wanting to focus this story on Gil and Eleanor Krauss. It's their story. It's an American story about this American couple. But obviously I knew that at least some of the rescued children would still be around, and I certainly wanted to include a number of them in the film as well, recalling their own experiences. And uh, ultimately I was able to find close to half, about 20 or so, and I think about half of the 50 are still alive. Um, um, and I ended up including about nine of them in the film. Fortunately, in the book, I was able to include interviews with many other of the, uh, of the children, uh, and, uh, uh, and a number of their voices end up being in, in the book as well. Did you hear from some of the people who had been involved in the story once the documentary was shown? I, I did. I did. You know, uh, you know, when you're researching a story like this, uh, and trying to find people 70, 75 years later, it's not, it's not so easy. Uh, and I remember a couple of times getting just phone calls out of the blue or, or a chance email after the film initially showed on HBO from, in one case, it was the child of, of, one, of, the rescued, uh, of one of the rescued children whose father was still alive, who, who I ended up being in touch with. And so there were a couple of cases like that where I learned of more of the children that I had come across when I was initially researching the film. So let's go back to uh, Berlin and Vienna and how was it that the, the Krauses decided that it was Vienna that they were going to focus on? There were Jewish community leaders <coughs> in Berlin as well as folks at the American Embassy who said um, Vienna is the place to be because conditions there are so bad and things have changed almost overnight for the Jews living in Vienna. Uh, I mentioned there were about 200,000 Jews in Austria. 90, 95% of those Jews lived in Vienna, the capital of Austria. And the conditions were so bad that Gil was told, go to Vienna because that's where you're going to find these children. And so Gil shows up in, in Vienna. Within a week or so, he phones, he telephones his wife back in Philadelphia and says, you know, I know you were warned not to come here because it's dangerous, but I really need your help. There's just too much to do. I don't have enough time, uh, and so please come. And so within a couple of weeks, Eleanor boards a ship, sails off to Europe, and joins her husband in Vienna, and that's where they focus on, on saving these children. There's a little aside here. You write about how uh, Gil took the Queen Mary luxurious <laughs> ship and um, Eleanor took the Washington, was comfortable enough, but fell far short of luxurious. The ship's main lounge inexplicably featured four enormous moose heads straight out of a hunting lodge in the Adirondacks. Not what you expect to find on a transatlantic uh, No, I, when, when I read Eleanor's account of that ship, you know, I, I, I did a double take as well. But what's revealing about that passage, Brian, uh, and, uh, and what I came to know, I, first of all, I never knew Gil and Eleanor Krauss. They passed away long before. Uh, I knew about this story and long before I had met my wife Liz. And I'm sorry that I never had the chance to meet them. But what I've come to learn about them is that these were folks who were accustomed to a particular lifestyle. They were not fabulously wealthy, but they were comfortable. And they were used to first-class hotels. And they were used to gourmet restaurants. And it turns out they were 
accustomed to traveling in a first-class fashion. And so it wasn't shocking at all that Gill sails to Europe on the Queen Mary, and it wasn't shocking at all that Eleanor sort of turns her nose up at the somewhat less than first-class accommodations of a of a steamship that didn't quite rise to the caliber of, the, of the Queen Mary with moose heads. Had, had Gill or Eleanor been to Europe ever before that? Yes, they had. Yeah, they, they both had. Uh, Gill, in fact, had spent time both in Berlin and in Vienna. Uh, shortly before he and Eleanor were married in 1924, he had taken a, I guess I'd call it sort of a bachelor's grand tour of, of Europe. Uh, Eleanor herself had been to Europe as well. She had never been to Berlin, uh, but Gill knew Vienna. And in fact, he talks at one point about going to a couple of restaurants that he remembered going to 15 years earlier in 1924, and now uh, in a very sobering fashion, seeing these signs that say, no Jews allowed. And he felt just horrible about that because it was really only at that point that he truly grasped what was going on inside Nazi Germany. Do you know how long their families had been in the U.S.? Yes, yeah. Uh, Gill's family had originally emigrated um, from Germany in the 1840s, 1850s, part of that so-called Great Migration of, of, of uh, German refugees both Jewish and otherwise, who had come to this country. Gill's father was born in Philadelphia. So it was his grandfather who originally, uh, who originally immigrated from, uh, from, from Germany. Uh, Eleanor's family was that more traditional Jewish migration from Eastern Europe, from Latvia. Uh, Eleanor herself was born in Philadelphia, but she had older siblings who, as infants, had come over from Europe. So they, they met in Paris, according to your book, and mm -hmm. took the Orient Express to, to Vienna. See, I'm telling you, these were, you know, these were people used to traveling in first-class accommodations. Yeah, Eleanor shows up uh, on the ship. She takes a train from Hamburg to, uh, I'm sorry, from Le Havre, France, to Paris. And she meets Gill in Paris. And they have a day of being carefree, casual tourists in beautiful Paris, again before the war. Paris is wonderful. As they, they, they have drinks at cafes. They window shop. They do the kinds of things that Eleanor loved to do. And then they step into their f sleeping compartment in, on the Orient Express, which was an extraordinarily luxurious train then, uh, and uh, take an overnight trip into Nazi Germany and arrive in Vienna the next morning. So. They, their goal was to find, identify 50 children and get them out. How, did, how do you pick 50 children? You know, that is really the heartbreaking part of this story, I think, because Gill and Eleanor knew that there were hundreds, probably thousands of families at this point who were, at, by now, truly desperate to find ways out. And these were parents who were uh, desperate to have their children somehow find safety. Uh, Gill and Eleanor show up at this sort of shabby, run-down building in Vienna that is the headquarters of the Jewish community, which was still allowed to operate by the Nazis. And there are hundreds and hundreds of parents who have brought their children once word got around that they were there to only pick 50. They only had room for 50, which is why uh, they were limited to that small number. 
Um, how they pick them, probably somewhat arbitrary. Uh, Dr. Schles, the Philadelphia pediatrician, was there to try as best he could to identify kids who were both physically and perhaps emotionally prepared to leave their children. Uh, but ultimately, um, it had to have been a somewhat arbitrary choice to pick 50 out of hundreds and hundreds of children who were, who were hoping to be part of this rescue mission. Were parents coming forward and saying, take my children? They absolutely were. You know, at one point, uh, there's, a, there's a passage in, in Eleanor's uh, memoir many years later where she talks very movingly of these parents basically begging to begging Gil and Eleanor to take their children to safety, knowing that really this was perhaps their really only their their last chance of of saving their children. Eleanor was a mother; she had two children at home, and it had to have been a devastating emotional experience for her to see these mothers. At, at one point, she says, "To take a child from its mother had to have been." the worst thing a human being could do, and yet Eleanor knew she was that lifeline for, th for these children. Uh, what were the age groups of the children? The youngest was just about to turn five. The oldest was 14 years old. Uh, most of the children were eight, nine, ten years old. There were seven sets of siblings, it turns out. So 14 out of the 50 were a brother-brother or a brother-sister in, 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 in one case, in my film, in fact, as well as in the book, there are two sisters who all these years later still live together in Florida, uh, and, and, and they were two of the 50 as well. Uh, and I remember very vividly when I was researching and looking for these children, I found the woman who turned out to be that youngest child. She was just barely five years old, and, and she said, you know, I'd love to talk with you, Steve, but I have no memory of this. I was only five years old and, and can you imagine a five-year-old child? Now she was there with her older brother who sort of looked out after her, but as a parent myself, I, I just can't imagine sending a five-year-old child off, but again these parents knew that they really had no, no choice. So what kind of paperwork did they need for each of the 50 kids? Ah, reams and reams of, of paper both required by the Nazis as well as by the American immigration officials. There was a bureaucracy set up initially by Adolf Eichmann in Vienna uh, called the Central Office for the Emigration of Jews. And this was the Nazis' very methodical bureaucratic requirement of reams of paperwork, documents, taxes that had to be paid, fees that had to be paid. Uh, the Krauses knew they had to assemble all of that paperwork. Each child had to be issued a German passport by the Gestapo in, in Vienna. More paperwork, more bureaucracy. And then when Gill gets to Berlin and brings all these children to the American embassy for their, for their visas, more paperwork in order to make sure that these children were healthy, that they had these affidavits of support waiting for them back in the States before they get their final visa. Uh, and uh, Gil, Eleanor in her, in, her, in her memoir, and I discuss in the book, all of this paperwork that Gil is preparing and completing. And uh, he knew that he had no choice, and all of the paperwork was done. 
the whole group of 50 had to go from Vienna back to Berlin before they could leave? Uh, they did because the visas themselves were, had to be issued by the American embassy back in Berlin. Vienna at this point had an American consulate, uh, but they didn't have final authority for these visas. Oh, it was, Austria was no longer independent. Austria was, was no longer, Germany. exactly. So what had been the Austrian embassy was now merely a consulate. Uh, and I should add that the consulate officials in Vienna, they weren't quite as supportive of this mission as uh, Mr. Geist up in Berlin. And so Gill became very frustrated about that because he sensed that he was running into roadblocks in Vienna. And he and Eleanor, in fact, at one point, take a quick weekend trip to Berlin with, before the children were, were picked in order to make sure that everything was still on track. Uh, and then they go back to Ber Vienna, they assemble all the kids, and yes, they take a train from Vienna to Berlin where the children are interviewed at the embassy, finally given their visas, and from there, one last train ride to Hamburg, Germany, which is the port of departure for the ship that will then take them all the way to America. How many adults keeping an eye on these 50 kids? Not many. <laughs> uh, it was Gill, it was Eleanor, it was Dr. Schles, the, the Philadelphia pediatrician. I, I imagine once they were on the ship, there were probably some people who were kind of sort of looking out after the kids, but it was interesting about that because some of the children themselves, some of the older ones, remembered the ship. They had very vivid memories and their recollections were that nobody was really looking out after them and they, well, they were kind of third, briefly had the run of the ship. They were in third class. The children were in third class. Gil and Eleanor and Dr. Schles were a few decks above them in, in first class. Now, I, I should say that we know, I know that Gil and Eleanor and, and Dr. Schles were keeping an eye out. Uh, they were already giving daily English lessons on board the ship. Uh, Dr. Schles spoke fluent German. Gil probably spoke a few words. Uh, one or two of these children told me that they had already learned a little bit of English, but basically they were not speaking any English at all. So they were already beginning to become Americans while they were on this 10-day journey across the Atlantic Ocean. Was it news in America when they arrived? There was a story in the newspapers the day they arrived, the day after they arrived. There was a story in the New York Times. There was a story in the Philadelphia Inquirer. There was an Associated Press story that was picked up by newspapers around the country. It was a short story, and once again, as he had done before, Gill went over to the reporters and said, we don't really want any publicity, because he was still worried about that backlash, except for that pretty short story the next day, there was really no other coverage of this. Uh, and that's pretty much how it remained for decades to come. So they took the kids to a camp in Collegeville, PA? They did. Uh, the Brith Shalom organization had, only a year before, built a summer camp for the children of their members to spend out in the wild woods uh, of, of Perkiamen Creek, in, right outside of, right near Collegeville, Pennsylvania, about 45 minutes or an hour or so from from Philly. Uh, and as part of that camp, uh, they had also built a big stone house with, which had 25 bedrooms. And it's a little unclear what was the purpose of that house. Some folks told me that they were pretty sure it was originally going to be some sort of old age home for senior, they weren't called senior citizens back then, <laughs> old age home. <coughs> but it hadn't been used. 
And Gil knew that there were 25 bedrooms and room for the 50 children. And that's where the children spent that first summer of 1939, right next to this summer camp. How did they get paired up with foster parents? One of the things that Gil did as soon as he got back to the States with the children was to start finding families that would ultimately take in these children. A lot of these children did already have relatives living in the States, and Gil knew that from, uh, from, uh, uh, from his own research. Some of those relatives very quickly took in, their took in the children, not surprisingly. Some of the parents of the children already were able to get their own visas once the children were here, and so some of these children were fairly quickly reunited with their parents, and in other cases they were sent to live at least temporarily with, with foster families, some of whom were the same friends of Gil and Eleanor who had signed these affidavits of support. I want to just read this one little anecdote from their time in Collegeville. And this is uh, June to August, so it's getting close to the start of the war. Uh, one, of the, one of the children said someone had bought, brought a Whitman sampler box, to, and it made its uh, chocolates, made its way around the bus I was on. One by one, the children bit into the chocolates, and uh, they said Viennese chocolate was so good, one remembered, and the Whitman chocolates were really awful. <laughs> you know, I hate to disparage Whitman's because I grew up eating Whitman's sure. <laughs> samplers chocolates, and I thought they were perfectly fine. Uh, the woman who tells that great story, a wonderful woman named Henny Wankart, who lives in New York City, she was a very precocious 10-year-old at this time, and, and she was a lawyer's daughter in Vienna. She was not unlike Gil and Eleanor. She was used to living a particular lifestyle in Vienna that, of course, by this time had disappeared her father was no longer allowed to be a lawyer, and, and uh, it was a very sobering moment for her to suddenly realize she was now simply a refugee child. That said, uh, she had this vivid memory of landing in America and biting into this chocolate that's making its way around the bus and basically spitting it out and saying, <laughs> this isn't chocolate. Uh, some of the other kids had great stories. One of them, a couple of them, uh, vividly remembered their first taste of Jell-O, uh, which was a, an American invention, something they certainly had never seen in, in Vienna. And there's a great story about one of them sitting down to a Jell-O dessert that had bananas inside the Jell-O, the way our moms used to make Jell-O with fruit inside. And they had no idea what the Jell-O was, but they certainly knew what a banana was. And bananas by that time had, were very rare in Vienna. It was almost a luxury to find a fresh banana. And they were scraping away the jello <laughs> to get to the banana until somebody said, no, 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 you're supposed to eat the jello as well. And that's mm -hmm. how they discovered jello. So when you started working on this project for the first for the documentary and then for the book, how did you find the find the kids? Mm -hmm. And and when you called them up, did you just call them up and say hi? I, Pretty much. Uh, you know, I uh, all those years I spent as a journalist, I really sharpened my investigative skills. And all these years later, I sat down and typed a lot of these names into Google. Um, truly, that's how I found some of the children. Uh, and, um, and yeah, it's, it's exactly that. I would sometimes just call them out of the blue if I was able to find a phone number or in some cases an email address and, and said, boy, this is going to be a little shocking to you. but." I'm calling as the husband of the granddaughter of the couple who saved you. 
And that quickly got their attention. Uh, I ended up calling folks who really hadn't talked about this story almost since it happened. Others, others had shared this story, obviously, with their, with their children, with their, with their grandchildren. But very few of them, really none of them, knew the full details of this story all these years later. They really didn't know much about Gil and Eleanor Krauss. They were, they were young kids. Once they were here, they resumed their own lives. They, they didn't keep in touch with each other? They kind no, of scattered? No, they really didn't. There were two children who were taken in as foster children by Gil and Eleanor, who lived with them on Cypress Street in Fittler Square for, for two years, went to Friends Select with, uh, with the Krauss's two children. Those two kids, Robert Braun and his sister, Johanna Braun, really were the only two of the 50 who, for years afterward, stayed in touch with, with the Krauses. The rest of these children, quite naturally, resumed their lives. Gil and Eleanor resumed their lives and, and, and lost touch. Uh, and so all these years later, here I am showing up, uh, asking them about this episode from 70, 75 years ago. And in, and in some cases, I was the one who was able to fill the gaps for them about this incredible couple who had, who had saved their lives. And I gotta tell you, that was really a very gratifying thing for me to do after all these years. Did the children or grandchildren of these original children tend to know about the story? Some of them did, and some of them really knew very little. It really all depended on uh, their parents or their grandparents, uh, many of whom had unfortunately passed away some years ago before they were able to pass along a lot of the details. And, and again, in some cases, the original rescued children knew very, very little about the details of this story. They knew vaguely that some Americans had shown up and they wound up on a ship, and often they didn't really know much more than that. Uh, in some cases, they knew a, a little bit more, and, and, and when they did, they were able to pass along those details. Uh, but I have to tell you that, um, you know, in terms of assembling some of the original documents or even some of the photographs that I was able to collect along the way, uh, I was able to share some of those materials with, with the children. And in some cases, children and grandchildren of these rescued children were seeing pictures for the first time of what had happened in 1939. You have a section in the back on the 50 children and a little paragraph on each one you've been able to identify. And quite a few of them were reunited with their parents. They were. They were. You know, again, we, we think of the Holocaust and we obviously we think of the victims uh, and, and those who were, who were exterminated in the, in, the, in, the, in the death camps in Auschwitz and Dachau and, and elsewhere. Fortunately for a lot of these children and their families, this was still a period when it was still possible to get visas. That became much more difficult once the war broke out, but many of these parents, and unfortunately I don't know exactly how many, but many of these parents were able to get their own visas. It became a little easier for them to do that once their children were here in the United States. Uh, and so within, in some cases within a few months, in some cases within a few years, these children fortunately were reunited with their parents. In one case, uh, the parents basically hid out in Vienna during the entire war and were not able to come to the United States until 1947. So in that case, there was an eight, nine year gap uh, until they were reunited with their children. Is this your first book? It isn't. Um, 
strangely enough, my first book, which was written many years ago, also had a Philadelphia connection. I wrote a book many years ago about a guy named Werner Erhard, who uh, had founded a sort of a self-help group in the 70s uh, called Est. He was a Philadelphia guy. It was a, it was a critical book about him, but that was a lifetime ago. Uh, and it was just a privilege to all these years later have an opportunity to, to write another book. And you said you've had a career as a journalist. Who have you written for? I spent uh, years uh, working for a bunch of different publications. I started out as a legal journalist in Los Angeles working for a, a legal affairs newspaper. And then I moved to Washington, D.C. in the 80s and worked for an outfit called Congressional Quarterly that had a weekly magazine covering uh, Congress and the Hill and politics. Uh, and then I moved back to San Francisco, where I, where I live now, and, and worked uh, for a magazine called California Lawyer Magazine that, again, covered, covered the legal industry. And uh, after many years of being a journalist, uh, a few years ago when I jumped into this project, uh, I turned my attention to this, to this great story, and it's, it's sort of immersed me ever since. Do you have another book in mind? You know, I'm waiting for great ideas to filter down. I, not, I'm not quite there yet in terms of my next project. I've, I've had a, a, a wonderful few, few years making this film and writing this book. That's been and, really and, and your project for a couple of years. Oh, yeah, I've been immersed in it now for a few years. And, uh, and I'm hoping to make another film. I'm hoping to continue to, to do this and just waiting for that great moment of inspiration to strike. And if people want to see the documentary, how, how can they find it? There are a couple of ways. Uh, it's still available on HBO, so if you're an HBO subscriber, uh, you can find it there. Uh, I have a film distributor in Los Angeles who's now selling the DVD, so it's available that way. And I'm also now beginning to show the film at Jewish film festivals and at other uh, festivals around the, around the country. So there are, one way or another, there, there are some nice opportunities to, to see the film. And if you want to read the book, this is the cover. It's 50 Children by Stephen Pressman. Thank you very much, Stephen Pressman. Brian, it's been a pleasure. I appreciate it. Thanks so much. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.